Uh, often referred to as America's pastime, uh, baseball and America have, have uh, been interconnected for a long time. I'm sure many of you in here love to watch a baseball game, love to go to a ballpark and buy an overpriced hot dog, right? <laughs> If you're a, if you're a baseball purist, you may prefer a game built on defense, pitching, moving runners over, right? The sacrifice bunt, the sack fly, managerial strategy, right? Lefty versus lefty, righty versus righty, this guy versus that guy, and making moves and, and doubling shifts and all that kind of stuff. Maybe that's what you like. But the truth is, I'm not a huge baseball fan. No tomatoes, please. Um, but you do have one of the best plays in all the sports. And it's not pitching. It's not shifts. It's not even a stolen base, but that's fun to watch too. But the home run. I mean, does it get much better than the home run? I mean, really, I mean, the crack of the bat can change everything. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word home run, but what comes to my mind immediately is King Griffey Jr. in his Seattle Mariners uniform with the most pure, fluid swing any, any player's ever had. In my opinion, okay, now I'm very limited here. Fluid swing, effortless. And the ball just flies off the bat. And, you, and, and if, you, if you've seen King, YouTube it later, not right now, not during my sermon. But the way he spins his feet, his hips. I mean, I mean I'd have to go to the chiropractor if I swung like that one time. It'd be over with. But the speed of his swing and his bat and his hips and his feet, you need to watch it. Just watch a YouTube and watch his feet. It's amazing how fast he can turn on a baseball and knock it over the fence. And then now recently in recent years, and I know baseball purists, you're not going to like this either. Recently years, we've added a little entertainment to the home run. And if you know what I'm talking about, you've seen the bat flips. I mean, we got, we got to have the bat flip. And Dave, if it gets too serious, somebody's going to get beamed the next time they come up. You know, you gotta, you gotta be careful because baseball, they got all these unwritten rules. You can't have fun in baseball. Nobody can laugh. Nobody can smile. Nobody can entertain people because we're paid to be serious, right? We're out here to be serious. But the bat flip. Well, you know, the home runs really exploded in the late nineties, early two thousands. I mean, there, you know, I read an article recently by David Vincent where he laid out a formula. He tried to track the home run rate per plate appearance. And it's kind of tricky because, you know, there's different games per season, different eras, different pitching, etc. Baseballs are different. Did they juice the balls or whatever? There's all these different things that variables that can come into it. But he tried to find a way to see, did the home run rate actually increase? And here's what he found out. Per 500 plate appearances of any batter, right, across the major leagues in 1994, the home run rate was 9.8 home runs per 500 plate appearances, okay? What he found out with that same formula, that in 1998, just a few years later, it went from 9.8 home runs per 500 plate appearances to 15 home runs per plate appearances. That's a lot more exciting baseball. I mean, can we all just agree? I mean, who wants to watch a guy go one to nothing? And look, I don't, I, I've been to some ballparks, the worst thing, I, it's like it's like the Lord has a curse on me. When I go to a baseball game, they're going to extra innings. I'm like, seriously? I mean, we, we've endured this. Let's get this thing over with. I mean, you know, I went to a 15-inning game one time. Like, somebody has got to win. And I'm with my my in-laws, and they're not leaving until the, till the thing's over. You know, there's just no way. In fact, we got to greet everybody on the way out, shake their hand, welcome to the ballpark. We're glad you're here, glad you came. This is your first time. We'd like to have you come back. You know, and all that kind of stuff. So, man, we were, we were emptying the place out. 
Like we were watching, we were watching the Florida Marlins. It was already empty. So, I mean, there wasn't much, there wasn't much going on. You know what I'm saying? And, and so, I mean, we had to shortstop pitching. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding you. They got, they run out of pitchers. They got the shortstop coming to the mound. I mean, this is the kind of chaos you got in baseball. That's why you play, that's why you watch football. In particular, the uh, Las Vegas Raiders with Devontae Adams now. But all right, go back to my sermon. So 15 home runs. That's an explosion. In just a little bit of time. And in that, in that era, during this time, some of you who follow baseball, and I mean, I got very, very, as a young kid, as a, as a young kid, I guess I was 12. Isn't that crazy? I was only 12 in 1998. Mr. Sloan, that's crazy, ain't it? So anyways, during this time, we saw players like Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Even King Griffey, that same year in 1998, broke Roger Maris' single season record of 61 home runs that had been in existence for decades. They broke it. Not by broke it like by one home run. I mean, Big Mac hit 70 that year. Hit 7-0. And it wasn't long after that, 2001, Barry Bonds, a Hall of Famer without steroids. I'm going somewhere with this. Okay, stay with me. He breaks Big Mac's record and hits 73 home runs. You know, say, man, Big Mac, that's McDonald's. Mark McGuire, for, you know, just look it up later. He breaks it. 73 home runs just a few years later. And then to follow that up in this home run explosion, Hammer and Hank's record. 755 home runs in his career. Hank Aaron, his record is broken by Barry Bonds just a few years after 2001. So the question is how in the world do we have that spike? Now I already kind of spoiled it. Steroids. Human growth hormone. They, they were, players were taking a little extra to help them stay healthy, to help them get stronger. And if you're a baseball purist, you just cringe at the word steroids. You cringe at the words human growth hormone. And that's what made the home run rate explode. In fact, since 2004, nobody, or 2001, nobody has broken 60 home runs. Have you seen what happened? We began to test for it. We begin to put more pressure on it. And the home run rate, if you're following Dave Vincent, the home run rate begins to curve back down to where the more normal rate per 500 plate appearances are. See, steroids made average players above average, good players great, great players Hall of Famers, and Hall of Famers like Barry Bonds, and not in the Hall of Fame because of his cheating, like Barry Bonds, otherworldly. Like, whoa, 73 home runs! That is a, that's almost, you know, every other game getting one. That's a ton of home runs. And I want to say this, obviously steroids are illegal, dangerous, and don't do it. Right? Young people, listen to me. Steroids are illegal, dangerous, and don't do it. But I wonder this morning, what does God use to bring jolts of growth into our lives? Right, we, we can look at baseball and see obviously there was a home run explosion and there had to be some type of outside substance to help numerous players hit 50 plus home runs in one season who would never otherwise been able to do that. And I wonder in this room, what does God use in my life and your life to bring us to a place of steroid-like growth? I want to give you this thought this morning, the spiritual growth hormone. See, God does use some things, in particular one thing to take me from apathetic to excited, from proud to broken, from okay to desperate, from carnal, driven by my flesh, to godly, driven by my spirit, by his spirit. 
What is, what is it that God is going to use? Because the apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, that I may know him. That word know is gnosko in the Greek. It means to come to a knowledge of. There's like an experiential thing happening here. That I may know him experientially. How am I going to do that? That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable unto his death, Philippians 3.10. How in the world am I going to come to know Christ? What is the agent? What is the substance? What is it that God is going to bring into my life to bring me to a place of total submission, total brokenness, total desperation, and a place of godliness? Because God's going to use something. God's going to bring something to bring us to that place. How is God going to do it? What is God's impetus for spiritual growth? What is God's catalyst to spur me on unto godliness this morning? You might be thinking, well, church attendance, yeah? That's one ingredient. Bible reading, prayer, maybe D group. You're in a D group here at our church. Maybe that's part of it. Sunday school. And those are all very important, but I'm, I'm talking about a season of growth that's hard to chart. That we're going along, we're going along, and all of a sudden, man, there's Christ-likeness explosion in my life. What is going to be that impetus this morning? Where's that steroid jolt of growth going to come from? I think the answer is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 5. Listen to what Paul says. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Hear me now, church. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. See, it's one thing to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, boy, boy that was really terrible what the Son of God went through. And it's something else to realize those are, that's going to abound in me. That God... And his divine sovereignty and plan is going to bring suffering into my life. It's going to abound in me. Why? Listen to the rest of the verse. Why would he do that? So our consolation, the word consolation in that verse is periklesis in the Greek. Para means come alongside. Klesis is a calling. The idea is that, that when suffering comes into my life, God allows suffering. God wants suffering. God brings the suffering of Christ in us today. Right? Why would he do that? So our consolation, our calling near, that's the, what the word means. A calling near would do what? Listen to the rest of the verse. Also aboundeth by Christ. Where's the steroid growth come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from dark seasons. It comes from hard times. It comes from times where everything is not okay. Do you realize this morning that God allows, brings, ordains, permits, and prepares tough seasons for you for a reason today? He's trying to bring you close to Him. He's trying to paraclesis. He's trying to draw you near. Just like the sufferings of Christ abound in us, Paul says, so also does the drawing near abound in me today. So also do I get to see God in a different way than I never saw him before because my suffering has brought me by his side, praise God. And that's what I'm saying to you this morning. There's a spiritual growth hormone in the midst among us that if we will let it, it will push us to a place you never thought you could go with the Lord. But it's going to be hard. 
It's going to be dark. I love what Kerry Smith writes in his book, Off Script. Off Script times are God times. God himself ordained the events of our lives according to his eternal purpose and has chosen you, has chosen me to journey with him in a more intimate way to experience a richness of closeness with him. To encounter his grace and presence in a way never before experienced. And to walk with him this morning, guys. To walk with him through difficulty that you might do what? Bring glory to his name. Periclesis. Paul said, God wants to draw you near. And the way he draws you near is it's got to get hard. Because you know what I found when everything's going good? I forget him, don't I? When everything's going good, I get, I get resting on my laurels spiritually. And I come to church and I go through the motions. But I'm telling you, when there's some desperate moments, I'm listening to those songs they're singing. And I'm raising my hand. My spirit's crying out to God. I'm doing what the Bible says, Yadah, the Hebrew word. I'm throwing that arrow up to God. I'm lifting my hands to Him. Because listen to me, God, I need you. You see the desperation difference? I need you, Lord. And I'm talking to some folks, man, you're hurting. There's some trauma. There's some difficult times. There's some dark seasons. We got to ask some questions. Do I really trust God? Do I believe that God is good even when the events of my life at this moment or a past moment are telling me differently? Do I believe he's sovereign over every event, including what is happening to me right now that I don't particularly like? Do I believe and know that God is loving and compassionate? Do I believe, do I believe that his plan for my life is better than my own? For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our consolation aboundeth by Christ. Do you understand this morning that God through suffering, through pain, through trouble, through disappointment, through hurt is giving you the privilege today? And it's a privilege, giving you the privilege to be called near to him. Do you realize that there is a reason for your suffering? It's to bring you to the place that our Savior was. It says, Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There were 12 well, at this point, 11 other disciples standing around, most of them asleep, who are not experiencing what Christ was experiencing because they weren't suffering like he was suffering. And everybody in this room, Brother Kevin and the praise team just sang songs. Not everybody got blessed the same way. They didn't. Some of you just went through the motions. Some of you, man, we're singing holy, holy, holy. And some of you just... Hey, not everybody in this, in this building, church is not the same experience as everybody. It can be the same sermon. It can be the same announcements. It can be the same video announcements. It can be the same, you know, we can have everything the same. And it's going to be different what's going to happen in our hearts. You know what lights up the word of God when we suffer? You know what lifts our souls to God when we suffer? You know what gives us that steroid growth when we suffer? When we suffer, 
Trials are so necessary because they reveal in us some false assumptions. Can I give you a few of mine? I, I went through a dark season and thank the Lord it's, it's, it, I'm coming out of it. But 2018, 19 and some of 20 were pretty dark for me. You guys prayed for me. You understand what I'm saying. Can I give you some false assumptions I had? See, that, trials do that. They reveal what you, what, you think, what you think is true, but they're not really true. Can I, I, just, I just took some time this week and wrote these down really quickly. I'm just going to throw them out to you. This is just seven of them that I came up with quickly. Number one, I'm young, so I'm going to be healthy. That's a false assumption. Not as young as I used to be, but I mean, I'm still 36. That's pretty young. Number two, my faith was strong. You ever believe that? Be careful what you whisper. Number three, the American medical system can easily fix any issue I might have. That is no slot on a doctor or a nurse in this room. I'm telling you what, this, this deal up here is complex. Y'all understand? This is complex and we still don't know everything about it. We're working on it. It's called practicing for a reason. Well, I had, I had this crazy assumption that, man, if, I, if something goes wrong, they're going to fix it. Give me a pill, give me a shot, give me this, give me that, and it's done. I'm back to myself. Nope. They may have a white coat, but they're just human. That's it. Number four, I could handle stress and trauma by working harder to fix it. That's my personality. I'm just going to work my way through it, going to push harder, going to try harder. Number five, my marriage was okay as it was. These are my false assumptions. Number six, my kids won't be impacted by my lack of joy and irritability. You can believe a lot of crazy stuff, can't you, about yourself? Number seven, money in the bank was paramount to a healthy future. If we believe that, the gas tank's taking care of that right now, whatever you may believe about that. Go buy an avocado, you'll be broke. I've watched them go out the roof in the last year. It took a lot of pain and sorrow for me to realize this stuff wasn't true. A lot. In those early months, you know what I tried to do? Convince myself I, I was right. Man, I just kept trying harder. Trying harder. I, you know, I, I just got to push harder. I believe these assumptions were true in my situation. So I'm just going to push harder and push harder. And then finally, finally, my medical doctor, the one I'm still currently seeing, thank God in maintenance mode, praise the Lord. He said to me, he said, Chris, this is early on, late 2000, early, early 2020. He says, God knocked your legs out to get to your heart. When are you going to let him do it? I said, I didn't come here for a sermon, brother. <laughs> He's right, though. And I wonder in this place, what's God trying to do in your life right now? Because I'm telling you, if we went around this room and you'd be honest enough in church, everybody's going through something. There's trauma in this room. We got the suit and tie on. It all looks good, but I promise you, you hang out with Chris for a little while, you're going to find out, boy, he needs prayer. We're going to get close to God or not? Because that's up to me. God, God is calling. God is drawing. It took me some time to listen to what he wanted to say. And I pushed back on it. But I'm telling you, God's moving in your life. 
The darker it gets, the harder he's trying to speak. Are we going to listen? Genesis chapter 50 this morning, really quickly. I'm just going to give you a few thoughts. Genesis chapter 50, we pick up with a man's life, Joseph. He's just buried his father, the patriarch of the family, Jacob. And we're going to see in this man's life what suffering does to a person. What suffering can do to a person. I'm going to ask you this question this morning. What made Joseph, Joseph? What made Joseph, Joseph? How was he so loving, so compassionate, so godly, so visionary, so forgiving, and so deeply committed to God? I mean, you're going you're gonna to be hard-pressed to find a Bible character that's got, uh, that's got more sterling character and qualities than Joseph from Genesis chapter 50. I mean, you're going to have to look hard in your scriptures. How did he get there? What made Genesis chapter 50, what made that Joseph, Joseph? Suffering. Suffering. I mean, Joseph endured so much. Joseph was, was, you know, had brought, uh, you know, Joseph was um, faced with bitterness. He was shown hatred. He was betrayed at the hands of his own brothers. Joseph was sold as a slave while at the same time being the apple of his father's eye. The coat of many colors, the whole deal, and shoved off into slavery. Joseph was deeply loyal and amazingly industrious for Potiphar, but yet he ended up in prison. I mean, think about how his life has these roller coasters. Hey, son, you got the nice coat. Well, we hate him. Hey, man, you are awesome. You're over my whole house. You're going to jail over because he would not sleep with and have sexual relations with Potiphar's wife. He finds himself in prison for four years. Four days is too much. Four hours, four minutes, or four seconds is injustice. And Joseph finds himself in prison. And then he thinks after two years, hey, I'm getting out of here. This butler's my, my ticket out of, out of this joint. And he gets forgotten again. I'm telling you, folks, when you read biblically, you look at his life starting in Genesis 37 and come all the way through it. You're going to I mean now you talk about injustice. You talk about, man, a guy who's been a victim of somebody else's wrong, horrible choices. It's Joseph. However, God had not forgotten him. Remember Pericles, God is drawing him near. God had been calling Joseph near to him. God had been changing and creating a heart that would love and serve him when the promotion came. God was making a man that would leave a legacy this morning for generations to come. And here we are some 3,700 years later and we're still talking about it. Man, what a life. And the reason Joseph was Joseph is because God brought him through some deep stuff, some dark seasons. And I want to give you this morning quickly three results of Joseph's suffering from Genesis 50. First of all, the first result is clarity. Look at Genesis 50 right now, verse number 15. Let's pick up there. Jacob and the father of Joseph is now dead. His brothers are scared. By the way, if we were going to read these verses, his own dad says to him, when I die, you make sure you ask him to forgive, man, because he's going to mess you guys up. I'm the, I'm the last thing that's holding up the wrath of Joseph. This was Jacob's belief. 
Jacob hadn't been in that prison cell, had he? He didn't know the heart of Joseph, really. Oh, but God did. Look at verse number 15. Look at what happens. And when Joseph's brethren saw their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us. Man, he's going to bring revenge. Everything we did wrong to him is going to be done to us. That's what they thought. Man, he's going to ruin our lives. Verse 16, and they were so scared, they sent a messenger unto Joseph. They wouldn't even go. Saying, thy father did command before he died, saying, so shall you say unto Joseph, forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brother and all their sins, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph, look what he did. He wept when they spake unto him. He couldn't believe it. And look, look at his response to him. And Joseph, they, they come to him and they fall down before him. Verse 18, man, we're your servants. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, fear not. Am I in the place of God? And look at verse 20. Here's the clarity this morning. Verse number 20, the Bible says, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Because of closeness with God, church, this morning, we see a man who's not quick to revenge, who's not harboring bitterness, who's not angry. He said, hey, I know what you guys meant. You hated me. I, I know that. But I don't hate you. I don't hate you. He said, I, I know you had ill, you had evil in your hearts, but I'm telling you, I understand now what God wanted. And God meant it for good. Amen. Do you see clarity? Man, the prison was good. That doesn't sound like much fun, does it? Man, the pit was good. The betrayal was good. You meant it for evil, but God had a plan. And I didn't understand it right then, but I'm telling you right now, brothers, get up off your knees. I love you. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any evil in my heart towards you. Because God wanted me here. Can I ask you a question this morning? What's God trying to teach you that you're refusing to learn? What clarity is God trying to give you in the trauma, in a dark season, in some deep suffering that you are not listening to? I love this quote by Paul David Tripp. He says this, we have a profound ability to trouble our own trouble. Boy, isn't that the truth? We have a profound ability to trouble our own trouble. And when trouble strikes, what do we do, first world Americans? We want to fix it. Fix our problems. Explain them away. Excuse our behavior. Press forward in pride. Refuse to listen to godly counsel. Run from God and blame him. Instead of getting the clarity and perspective that Joseph got and saying, God, it wasn't all that good at the time, but now I know it was meant for good. Now I know there was a reason for that suffering. Pain this morning is never wasted with God, church. Never. God never wastes a thing. He is the greatest steward ever. And I'm telling you today, I don't know what you're, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're struggling with, but there's some false assumptions that's got to go. I can tell you that. They got to go. 
Your heart this morning, God is wanting to change it. Carrie Smith says his presence, God's presence, God's perspective, God's promises are the greatest discovery in all of life. And I say amen to that. All of life. All of life. And what's he say? I love this and listen to it. But sometimes it takes darkness to see it clearly. Sometimes it takes darkness to see it clearly. I ask you this morning, what's your clarity like? See, the psalmist said, Psalm 119, verse 71, it's good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. You know what suffering does? It lights this thing on fire, doesn't it? What did we just say? The greatest discoveries of life are his presence, his promises. His perspective. Number one, the first result of a life of suffering is clarity. Number two, from Joseph's suffering, we also see compassion. Look at verse 21. Now, and he's still talking to his brothers now. He says, verse 21, now therefore fear you not, I will nourish you. Can I tell you something this morning? The reality is this, hurting people hurt people. I'm going to say that again because that's really important. Hurting people Hurt people, always. You can mark it down. The times where you have been the deepest hurt, this is true in marriage. It's true as a parent. It's true as a professional. It's true as a neighbor. It's true as a brother. It's true as a sister. It's true as a church member. Hurting people hurt people. And when I don't deal with my suffering the right way, guess what? Joy's going to lose for it. My kids are going to lose for it. You are going to lose for it. I'm going to take it out on you. Say, I don't know about that, Brother Chris. Well, let's think about it for a second. Why did the brothers hurt him, hurt Joseph by selling him as a slave? They were hurt. Their daddy, their daddy loved him more. He had the coat of many colors. They had some envy and some jealousy and some anger. And guess what? They didn't deal with it the right way. And they hurt him. Let's go back to the first murder in the Bible. Why did Cain kill Abel? Abel was killed by his brother Cain in the first murder of the Bible because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. He got mad. He got hurt. God, you hurt me. You offended me. And so what do hurt people do? They hurt people. And because he got hurt, he thought the way to deal with that is not to be drawn close to God and to change my sacrifice. I'm going to kill the one who was accepted. That'll fix it. By the way, did that fix it? No. He ran for his life the rest of his life. See, let's throw another one out. What about first century Israel? Jesus shows up, the Messiah, the Son of God. And what do the the religious authorities do? They hurt him. Because he refused to play their game. He refused to do it their way. He told them to repent. Well, that's not good when you're talking to a Pharisee. He said, repent and believe the gospel. They didn't like it. They got hurt. They got envious. They got jealous. And guess what they did? Crucified him at the hands of the Romans. And they went so deep into their hurt. Listen to me. They actually told Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. That's terrible. That's politics at its finest. Leveraging some type of political movement to get what you want. 
We have no king but Caesar. They hated Caesar, but they hated Jesus more. James chapter 3, verse 16, for where envying strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. Why didn't Joseph choose to hurt his brothers? He had been hurt. I mean, bad. And he had the power, the opportunity, and the authority to levy him down, didn't he? Anytime he wanted to. What does he say? Verse 21. Now, therefore, fear you not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them. That word comforted means he felt sorry for them. I can't believe you guys would think this way. 21 years after he was sold to slavery, they appeared before him in Egypt. And he had the power to kill them, but yet he forgave them and loved them and fed them. 18 years later, their dad dies. And they're thinking, now it's our time. 39 years. And Joseph says, hey, man, I'm going to feed you. Are you kidding me? I got compassion for you. I'm not just going to feed you. I'm going to feed your kids. I'm going to feed your grandkids. You know what he said? Joseph promised them this, that there would not be a day that he would treat them the way they treated him. There would not be a day that he would treat them the way they treated him. Isn't that Christ likeness? We ought to hit the altar seriously. Because what do we do? Revenge, revenge, revenge. Bitterness, get even, jealousy, envy, strife. Fight your way through it. I'm not going to be stepped on. We live in this culture. I'm going to make my way. I'm going to do my thing. That is not biblical. It's just not. What did Jesus say? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. We don't have a ground to hold a grudge. And I'm not trying, I'm not oversimplifying this. It takes time. It's a, it took me a long time to learn some lessons. But I'm telling you today on the authority of the word of God, you through suffering will grow in your compassion. Number three, and I'm done. The third result from Joseph's suffering is his confidence. Oh, please stay with me now. I know I'm in overtime. Y'all love overtime unless you're at a baseball game. We all hate that. All right. Verse number, verse number 24. Look at his confidence. See, suffering allows us to draw near to God during those times. And during those times, it's going to result in confidence. Joseph was now, he wasn't looking to his dad and his coat of many colors anymore. He wasn't looking to his heritage or his power or his own abilities. Remember, he said, God meant it for good. God did that. God brought me out. God brought me through. God's doing something in my life. God is going to give me the one who's going to use me. God, God, God. Do you see what suffering can do if you let it? It will sharpen your focus of who God is, what he wants, and what he can do in your life if you will let it. God is trying to draw you near. You're not drawing near to him. He's trying to pull you close to him. Man, this is awesome today. Man, what? remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also our consolation, our drawing near by Christ. He's the one pulling on me when it gets dark, when it gets ugly, when nobody else is around. He's the one saying, hey, Chris, I want to talk to you. Let me, 
Let me speak into your soul today. And it results in Joseph some amazing confidence. Look at what he says, verse 24. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. That's where most of us stop, but not Joseph. He had some confidence, see. And I'm going to tell you something, family. God is going to visit you. Visit us. We got it made down here. Brother Kevin, man, they were, they were living high on the hog. If Egyptians had hogs or whatever, you know, probably didn't own a bad barbecue. Maybe Memphis style or Kansas City it was better, you know, whatever. But easy. I like Eastern Carolina, too. I like it all. How can you go wrong with a pig and a shoulder, you know? Come on. Man, they had it good. They had it real good. I mean, Joe, they're... they're now their patriarch at Jacob's gone is in charge. Why would God visit us? Joseph, you're talking crazy talk. Joseph said, no, 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 no. You hear me. Verse 24, you hear me. God's going to visit you and he's going to bring you out of this land. Unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Where in the world... Did this confidence come from that God was going to do what he promised he would do to his to Joseph's great granddad? This is personal. Joseph's granddad and Joseph's daddy. He said, gang, we ain't here to stay. Better keep your bags packed. God's going to visit us. He ain't leaving us in Egypt. And they might have been thinking, why not? Why not? I bet the Egyptians thought, Brother Jeff, I bet they thought, man, why is he not building a fancy pyramid? Where's his tomb going to be? What's what's his Joseph all about anyways? See, because look at me, church. I'm going somewhere. When you suffer, you see things differently, don't you? And when people on the outside look at you, maybe you're going through a battle, they think, how are they doing that? But there's going to come a point, if you get close to God, you'll say, you know, you're the one missing out, not me. I'm getting something you can't believe. I'm getting a confidence and a faith and a reassurance that you would not understand. And Joseph said, folks, we're leaving here. Let me me just run it down for you really quickly. If you were sold by your brothers to a foreign country as a slave at the age of 17, then quickly earn a promotion to oversee a wealthy man's estate to only be falsely accused nine years later of adultery and find yourself in a prison in Egypt for four years to suddenly at the age of 30 get get promoted to second in charge and to the world power at the time? You know what you'd say? God can do what he promised he's going to do. God can do it. And he told him, God is going to visit you. And look at this request. Look at verse 25. I'm coming down the home stretch. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel. He said, I want you to make me a promise. I know it's going to happen. I'm going to make, you, make me a promise. Saying, God will surely visit you. And notice this now. And ye shall carry up my bones from hence. I don't want no pyramid. I don't want no Egyptian burial. What I want is go back to the land God promised. And I know it's going to happen. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. You get my bones and you put them in a coffin in a box. And when you leave here one day, you take them. What? Man, they're thinking, this guy has lost it. What is he talking about? 
Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. You know what the Bible says? Everybody else is running around town taking gold, taking jewelry. Man, getting rich, getting rich on their way out of Egypt, baby. You know what Moses did? The Bible says it this way. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. He said, I don't need all that jewelry. I need this box. Because this box is going to tell me in 40 years, God's going to keep his promises. You ain't got to worry about that, Joseph. Moses, you just do what I've called you to do. The bones kept Moses going, didn't he? I wonder how many times he looked at that box and thought, God, you're going to do it, aren't you? You're going to do it. Think about what you've been through. How many times you look back and said, God, I don't know how I'm going to do tomorrow, but I've seen where you brought me from and all you can bring me through. Huh? Let's be serious this morning. How many times you look back and said, God, I don't know how, we, I don't know how that happened, but it was you. And I don't have the strength for tomorrow, but I know you do. You don't think it got dark walking around 40 years, a couple million people whining and crying? You better believe it did. And he's carrying that box. And those bones are whispering, God's going to do it. God's going to do it. And can I report to you? Joshua 24, when they got, to, they got across that Jordan River, Derek, you know what happened? They buried those bones in Shechem. Just like Joseph said they would. Where's that confidence come from? Not from him. Not from him. From the years and years and years and years of suffering and seeing God continue to speak and work and move. I hope this is helping you this morning because it sure has helped me. My little girl, she hates storms. She don't even like the rain. I know farmers are like, she needs to stop. I'm, I agree with you. She can't stand the rain. So it, you can imagine if a thunder, a crack of thunder comes with that rain, it scares her to death. But yet she loves for it to storm at night. Because she knows if it storms at night, you know what she's going to get? She's going to get daddy next to her in the bed. Tell her it's all right. She actually asked, Dad, is it going to thunder tonight? There's a several hundred farmers praying for it, sweetheart, but I don't think so. Daddy, you sure it ain't going to thunderstorm tonight? Because she wants me in there. Can I ask you a question? Do we like for it to storm? It was a convicting thing. I walked out of her room a few weeks ago and I closed the door after she fell asleep, after the thunder was cracking. It's been a while back now. And I closed the door and I thought, Lord, that's what I'm supposed to do, isn't it? I'm supposed to desire this stuff because you come close to me when it happens. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions. I take pleasure. That's talking crazy. And infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions. 
And distress is for Christ's sake. You know why? For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul loved a storm. What clarity are you lacking today? Oh, we're all lacking something. What's your compassion like? You harboring some bitterness? Well, that person hurt me. Would you read Genesis 50 one more time and tell me where you have the right to take that ground? Are you lacking some confidence? Chris, I can't face it. I can't face it. I can't face it. In that moment, God gets near. And there's power there that you and I can't understand. The Bible says it's a peace that passes all understanding in that moment. Bob Goff says this. He said, I've spent my whole life. Think about this, church. I've spent my whole life trying to avoid the experiences that Jesus wants to use to help me grow. And what do we do? We try to find ways around it. Let's get to the place where when the thunder cracks, we allow God to draw us near, to gain His clarity, His compassion, His confidence. Spurgeon says this, and I'm done. This quote, I have learned to kiss the waves that throws me against the rock of ages. Kissing those waves a day. Don't sit in this church and think, well, it's just for somebody else. It's for you. You kissing those waves? Because whatever puts me up against Jesus is a, is a blessing and a godsend. And that's hard to swallow sometimes. But I have learned to kiss the waves that throws me against the rock of ages.